came to Las Vegas, went out to eat the expensive seafood that I don't really like, or the wine that I couldn't pronounce or didn't even taste a difference of. Went out to shop like crazy, all Gucci Prada and uh, whatever. And then coming back to the hotel room, and then up in my hotel room, I actually started to cry. Just had this feeling of, wow, is this what a successful, happy life is? The person telling that story is Niklas Adelbert. He's the co-founder and former deputy CEO of Klarna, the Swedish fintech unicorn that provides payment services for online storefronts. At one point, they were valued at a whopping $45.6 billion. But this is far more than a typical founder story. Finding no real happiness in his gargantuan success, Nicholas found himself hitting rock bottom in Vegas and left Klarna in order to found the Norskan Foundation in 2016. He wanted to find meaning, not money. Norskan called themselves an impact ecosystem on a mission to help entrepreneurs make saving the world their business. Nicholas is now less interested in unicorns than he is in impact unicorns, companies that positively impact one billion lives. But for someone who focuses on doing good, I was surprised to hear that Nicholas's first experience of entrepreneurship was a brush with the law. No, so I was born and raised in a town called Uppsala. It's like 200,000 people, one hour north of Stockholm. And um, I was uh, the middle child, three, one, one older brother and one younger sister. And I remember for as long as I can that my father always said that, Nicholas, you can do whatever you want in life as long as you become a doctor like him, right? From very early on, I had this like performance-based self-consciousness. So if I perform, uh, that's like a strategy to feel uh, maybe extra loved or get the attention to be seen. Because the thing was also that my father and my brother was real extroverts, uh, almost like comedian extroverts. So they took all the attention at the dinner table. And me being an introvert, I didn't really, I guess, seen, felt seen to that extent. So performing well was my like strategy to to be seen. So I um, loved to play around with computers. Uh, I was a Mac user, so it was not that much fun to do with Mac users. I played around a lot with graphic design and, and eventually got stuck on Warcraft 2, the game. Uh, and just loved to be in that flow and just the time passed without you knowing it, right? I became quite good at it. So kind of painting this picture of the introverted nerd. Yeah, at least semi-nerd, I think. I mean, at least not as extroverted as uh, uh, my brother that I wanted to be and uh, competed about everything, basically. Uh, but all this changed uh, when I was 13 years old. Uh, I was standing outside the local supermarket in uh, uh, Uppsala. And out comes a f- friend, a one-year-older friend with a cage of beer. And in Sweden, you need to be 18 years old to buy beer. And we were all like, hey, what's going on? How did you accomplish this? And uh, he showed us this fake ID that he made himself. And it looked awful, but still like good enough for him to buy, maybe to buy cigarettes and beer. And me and my computer geek friend uh, were really impressed and like, wow, I think we can do that so much better. So we went home to our computer, started to experiment, and this was right when the like color color uh, printers and color scanners came out to the market, and uh, we actually were able to produce a quite good-looking fake ID. And uh, being 13, I looked maybe uh, that I was 11, uh, went to the uh, local kiosk, tried to buy cigarettes, and I was able to do it. It actually worked. And so we were showing off this to friends and um, they got interested. We produced more and we started to come to advertise this on the internet uh, called Mirk back then. It was like a first version of Facebook or something. 
and um, this business actually grew and uh, my brother's friend got interested in this as well so I sold some fake IDs to to them as well and I got recognized in in town and so finally I got this like external recognition and was seen for the first time and that was like a fantastic feeling for me but this didn't last forever of course uh, because we started to uh, uh, forge uh, food coupons and cinema tickets and stuff as well and eventually a person got caught and then the entire uh, thing exploded uh, and eventually 32 people got prosecuted um, but luckily Sweden is very uh, mild on first time uh, offenders so it was only uh, a heavy fine uh, for me and my my friend but also like a great great learning uh, both, I mean, never worth to be on the wrong side of the law. We were in the end, when we were 15, right before we got caught, we were always nervous when the kid knocking on the door or uh, when the phone rang and so on. But also that it was actually quite fun with entrepreneurship or whatever you're going to call this, right? Uh, and finally, uh, it was really fun to make money. I mean, I was, uh, during this time, I got addicted to uh, uh, not only computer games, but uh, but candy. I ate a lot of candy and pineapple pizzas and probably being the richest kid uh, among my peers, at least. So I really changed course that I, I don't want to become a doctor. I wasn't smart enough for it anyway, uh, but instead I want to pursue uh, business. Yeah, it's interesting. I wonder how many doctors order pineapple pizza. <laughs> I think a great a great question of, you know, have you stayed true to your roots? Are you still the same guy as, you know, do you still order pineapple pizza? I do. Yeah. Yeah. I think once you go pineapple pizza, you never go back, I think. Yeah. And this is kind of like the sign of good things to come as well, right? I guess before we move into that, I'm curious, you know, what did this teach you about authority? No, good question. I think Sweden in general is probably one of the less hierarchical countries maybe in the world but with that said I think I always had like an uh, authority respect for people but with that said I think that I mean with this experience I sort of also learned that to maybe not stay within uh, the given rules and to look outside of that so I guess it's like a, a mix mix of it. So you've managed to evade the police you're fine did that wipe out all of your earnings or did you still come away sort of net profitable? I think maybe net zero, I would guess. Uh, I mean, they, they probably didn't grasp the full extent of the of the total uh, revenue uh, I, I, I made here. But I mean, everything was wasted on pineapple pizzas. There was nothing left anyway. So I had to start to work at Burger King um, and later on cleaning airplanes to pay off, pay off the fines. And uh, did the military service. And then me and uh, my friend from seventh grade, Sebastian, that I eventually went on to start Klarna with, um, we decided to go around the world without flying. Uh, this was a time when these like docu-soaps, reality TV thing. So they were just about uh, Expedition Robinson and so on, or Survivor, I think it's called in English. And we got this idea like, why don't we go around the world without flying? Uh, and we tried to film one hour per day. And then maybe we can sell this to a production company or whatever. And then we can be, be seen or uh, recognized. So we went, off we went. Uh, we got all the way to Australia. Uh, but then we missed our boat, our cargo ship across the Pacific Ocean and this meant that Sebastian that was studying at business school he couldn't get into his finance masters because he had to write a final exam he couldn't do that uh, but we wanted to still pursue this trip and so we did so we went all the way around the world without flying they got the, the bottle of champagne that we had digging down and being back then in Sweden 
Sebastian has to pass one year, try to find a job. Um, and the only job he could find in the end was to be a telesales person at a finance company. He started to call different customers and they all didn't want his services, uh, but eventually got in contact with e-commerce companies. And they said that, hey, we would love to offer uh, invoice-based payment solutions so people can actually buy now and pay later, touch and feel the product and then transfer the money. So Sebastian thought about this, presented it to the management and said that, hey, what about if we do like a simple risk assessment uh, before we allow the person to get credit. They were not that irresponsive, so he uh, quit that job eventually, wrote his final exam, uh, got into the master's program. But he couldn't get rid of this idea, so he went around in school, presented this to different uh, friends, and uh, eventually me and the third friend, uh, Victor Jakobsson, decided to, hey, why don't we give this a try? It sounds like a quite smart idea. And uh, so without that missed boat, uh, there would clearly be no Klarna today. Uh, so it's all about coincidences in the, in the end. So interesting, isn't it? It's all about where other people see, you know, mistakes or failures. Actually, there's an opportunity. You just need a long enough time horizon to realize it. And also, you know, some perspective looking back, you know, something that a lot of people don't do, right? It's sort of reflect back on the journey and be like wow there really was that pivotal moment that felt frustrating or irritating then but actually it was a lot more than that yeah exactly and we, we tried to sell this uh, this tape we edited it down to like a promotion video uh, sent it to 25 different tv channels and production companies and we didn't get a single response uh, and we're so happy about that today so that no one could like take part <laughs> of our embarrassing uh, journey yeah, and I'm assuming you still have a copy of that, but you don't necessarily want that public on the internet. Correct. Uh, I mean, I think our trailer is on the internet, but uh, the rest is in a right. hidden safe, yeah. It's interesting because you're, um, you know, like you're saying, a sort of geeky introvert, but looking for um, recognition. And actually, like, when was this? You're saying this must have been 15 years ago? 17 years ago, yeah. Wow, long time ago. Yeah, so 17 years ago, either way, however you look at it, you'd have been really early in a growth area because you'd have been the OG creators. But I'm sure you prefer this lifestyle slightly more. Yeah, absolutely. And to be honest, I think I had zero talent in that area. I mean, so in- uninteresting right. to watch and um, look at. So uh, my-, my career would be a disaster in that area. You mentioned, you mentioned Sebastian's off doing his... Uh, telesales and trying to get you know finish his masters what about yourself what were you doing uh so me i i think i had like part-time jobs at, as a school teacher as well as a bartender uh, meanwhile trying to make my grades uh, become better so i can get into the same school as sebastian the stockholm school of economics so i didn't have the same excellent grades as he had uh, from the, his high school years uh, too much time focused on maybe studying medicine <laughs> yeah exactly okay so how did it start like what happened you i understand like where the problem comes comes from you're looking at these e-commerce companies you're told no one's interested you're doing your own version of uh, trying to make ends meet and upskill your education so you can do more with your life sebastian's already there what next so i started in the same business school uh, then as sebastian uh, we're all 23 years old and uh, he kept on talking about this business idea and we decided to uh, pursue it i mean what do you do we have this like big idea uh, we have no knowledge whatsoever how to program a system basically don't have any experience from uh, fintech or banking and i mean my experience was only from burger king and cleaning airplanes so it was like a deep start and we didn't have any money whatsoever so we tried to figure out that okay perhaps we should at least start with the with the money this is 2004 uh, the terminology of uh, the business angels really didn't exist so we just like opened up the uh, swedish business newspaper and tried to call wealthy 
people and try to get a, a coffee so that we could pitch it. And 20, maybe 30 uh, meetings in, still no success. But then uh, the Stockholm School of Economics organized like a business mingle for their incubator that we were able to enter. And in that uh, mingle was a lady called Jane Valerud that decided that, hey, I want to invest. Uh, she invested $60,000 for 10% of the company. And she also had this uh, group of uh, uh, developers that she worked with before. Uh, so we took in five of them for 37% of the company. So basically, before we even started, uh, we only, uh, with quotation mark, had 53% of the company left. Which we realized, like, hey, we don't have any experience. We, if we're going to pursue this big idea, we need to be generous with the, with the shares. So two lessons in that I find absolutely staggering. One is how important it actually is to, when you, when you have no experience, there's almost like a beauty in ignorance, right? Because it's a hard one. You gave away too much to the company, 100%, everyone will tell you that you're an idiot. But a company went on to be super successful and you don't have a Klarna without that moment. And a lot of people with higher ego and more experience would have just turned it all down. Like 100% of nothing is still nothing. The other part, obviously, is surely that goes down as top 10 best angel investments of all time. Like she must be literally in a class of her own. No, absolutely. And the story is actually that uh, we want, we asked for $40,000. And just when we were supposed to, to sign, she said that, hey, I, I think you guys need 20,000 more. So she just handed over like 50% more of the initial investment. So she, she saw that as well. And she decided not to be like a greedy, you know, I mean, the opposite of that. Mm. And she went on, I think, to fund and or invest and start uh, two other unicorns. It's been tremendously successful, the by far most successful business angel, I think, in Sweden. That is incredible. Okay. So we feel like we need to do an episode with her and just to yeah. understand what the hell, her, where, where her killer instinct comes from so we can learn how to invest better. If you're trying to grow your startup and you're dealing with companies outside of the UK, you're probably going to need ISO 27001 at some point. It's not the sexiest acronym, but it's basically the global standard for proving your security practices are up to scratch, like how you handle customer data. The same goes with SOC 2. You're going to need it if you're a SaaS company. But achieving these security frameworks can be very tedious and very costly. This is where our partner Vanta comes in. Vanta automates up to 90% of the work for certifications like ISO 27001, SOC 2, GDPR, HIPAA, and more, getting you audit ready in weeks instead of months and saving you up to 85% of the cost. And as a special offer, our listeners get 20% off Vanta. Just head to vanta.com slash secretleaders. That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash secretleaders for 20% off. There's a link in the description. Look, you know I'm fascinated by AI, but until the machines take over, there's only one thing that's going to determine your company's fortunes. People. This isn't some kind of hollow point to make me look good. If you speak privately to any successful entrepreneur, they'll confirm it's true. So, if you're a leader of a growing business, then you should check out Personio. It brings together all the important HR things like hiring, onboarding, payroll data, performance reviews, and so on. You don't want loads of employees sending you emails asking for time off. You want to be able to see things objectively, like it's taking you too long to hire. You want to do performance reviews well, having clear goals for people that are logged in a centralized system. And you want to do all these things in one simple tool without having to become an HR expert. 
All of this is possible with Personio. Check it out at personio.com forward slash secret leaders. That's personio.com forward slash secret leaders. There's a link in the show notes. So you've given up 47% of the company um, for basically $60,000 and some developers. Correct. Right. So at this point, like, what are you actually thinking about this as the three of you? This one, we realized that, hey, this is actually for real. Uh, I mean, first we tried to uh, still do some exams and so on on the side, but we realized quickly that if someone left the room and to, to went out to study, it just was so demotivating. So we decided that, hey, let's now focus. And I think with the contract with Jane and the developers, it was a two-year contract to give it all. And, and so we did. We started to uh, work with the developers to design the system. I mean, we had zero experience with um, e-commerce or our customers. So we, but we were lucky to, to have a friend that actually had an e-commerce site, uh, Jarno, that had a site called Nelly. And uh, so we developed it together with him as, as the first customer. And that's an advice I would try to give everyone that if you can have and develop your service and your technology together with a customer, that's by far the best thing. Because we realized that, I mean, we built something and we showed it to him and he's like, yeah, but I need to have like functionality to do returns. Oh, is it returns in e-commerce? Oh, okay. Then we had to go back and we had to develop that functionality as well uh, until we actually were were able to launch uh, with him five months later. And meanwhile, uh, we did some a lot of telesales and we realized uh, quite early on that this is all about mathematics if we do 10 100 calls that will generate 10 meetings and out of those 10 meetings we get one contract to simplify so if we just double the output of, of the telesales to 200 calls per day uh, i mean we will double our sales and this was still at the time where you can actually reach people over the phone i know it's much much harder today of course and especially in the uk uh, so we, we just went on and and um, uh, realized that i mean uh, the more to do's we're able to do per day the more uh, speed we get uh, and it's all about to maximize that so i think we worked the first two years we worked uh, we had five Five days off in total, uh, including Christmas, and worked an average of around 80 hours per week just to compensate of our inexperience and not knowing what the hell we were doing. Because what happened in Sweden back then is that when we started, at least to me, we wanted to be as big as Price Runner, uh, which was the uh, lightning star in Sweden. They were valued to $10 million. Uh, because we had a quite severe dot-com crash in Sweden um, and they were the ones that actually were able to survive and able to sell. But then what happened was that in 2005, uh, a year after we started, was that Niklas Sandström sold his Skype to Microsoft for $2 billion. Uh, so overnight we realized that, wow, you can actually build a unicorn out of the tiny city of Stockholm. Uh, I mean, if he can, we can do it and so on. And I think this is one of the, or maybe the number one reason why we see so many unicorns coming out of Sweden. I think we're second in the world just next to Silicon Valley uh, because we got that role model so early on. Um, and that was really intriguing and, and uh, raised ambition level by, by all of us. Yeah, you cannot be what you cannot see. Exactly. I think in some places, like you're specifically saying, can actually be the spark of one person showing they can do it against the odds, which really turns the tide for everyone else and just inspires you to say, if him, why not us? No, absolutely. I mean, in Sweden, when we got Björn Borg, the one of the best tennis players in the world, 20 years later, we had like a next generation of great tennis players as well. So the power of role models is uh, gigantic, I think. We've, we've started off talking about Klarna, but actually, I guess we haven't really defined like what was Klarna? Like, what was the vision for it then? And, and how consistent did that stay for the entire life cycle of the company? Right. We started with like a uh, uh, buy now, pay later product. Uh, so you buy something online, um, you add, enter your personal details and you press buy. We do a risk assessment and then 
you can ship the product as an e-commerce player and you get guarantee payment. Uh, so you don't take any risk in that transaction. And then we make sure to collect the money uh, post uh, delivery. And then that delivered into multiple payment options. Uh, we also added an installment product. So you can uh, buy now and then you pay it in different parts uh, in one year time or two years time. It was really good because Sweden is a very tiny market. So we quite quickly ran out of phone calls to be made. Uh, so we were able to expand to, to new markets um, and it went actually quite good. And we were able to be profitable, uh, I think just 12 months into uh, running Klarna. And this then enabled us when we still were able to raise capital because of uh, the balance sheet, since we lend out a lot of money, we were actually able to force the investors coming in to offer us founders stock options. So we were always able to defend this 53% of the company and still be able to be in control. And I think it was just around like 10 years into when we had to give up that, uh, that majority. There is an understanding, almost a de facto expectation for startups that raise money, you're always going to be diluted. And I can imagine in your position where you've started at such a disadvantage, the number one pushback you'd have had from VC funding at the beginning would have been something along the lines of, yeah, but you're not going to be able to survive X many dilution rounds. So how big can this get? Because you're going to become demotivated, which would obviously provide the perfect pushback of, well, then just don't dilute us. So is that kind of how it went? Or can you give us an insider tip on how, in the right position, how can you negotiate to get more of what's fair? No, I, I guess, I mean, we were very lucky with the timing of Klarna. So we were right when the e-commerce took off. Uh, so even though we didn't do a thing, we'll still be growing by 50% per year. And it's not that many companies that are in that fortunate position. And I guess that was like one of the reasons why we were able to dictate the terms. Uh, so when Sequoia Capital, for example, went in with our, I think it was Series A, um, uh, we said that, yeah, I mean, either we pick Index or uh, Bollerton or someone, or, or we go with you guys, but this is what you have to offer us. And they were able to buy off some secondaries and still make their investment uh, make sense. And uh, I think the, the, the warrants had like a strike price of 5x. Uh, so if we were able to uh, five times the company, it was a win for them, it was a win for us and win for everyone. Yeah, that's really good. So actually getting into the nitty gritty of what fair and success looks like. Uh, you know, how did it feel to become profitable? What did you do? I mean, I, I had that dream in life, right, since my fake ideas that... Uh, if I just become financially independent, I will reach nirvana and be the most happiest guy alive. Uh, and in 2011, uh, seven years in, uh, we did a round with DST Global and General Atlantic. And in that agreement, we were able to sell off some shares. I went from being in debt into having $10 million on my bank account. So from one day to the next, I had all of that money. Mm. And uh, I had a conference booked in San Francisco. It was a Crunchy Awards by TechCrunch. It was very short notice, but I decided to stop by in Las Vegas on my way to the conference. Red or black, by the way, how did you make 20 million, red or black? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I actually love play poker. So that was one of the motivations to go there. I'm, uh, even though I like it, I'm not that particularly good at playing though. I went there by myself and, uh, you know, for the first time I was able to go by business class, you know, you go to the left instead of to the right, you get a glass of champagne instead of being yelled at and uh, stay, went, came to Las Vegas, checked into this big panorama suite at the, at the Encore, watching out to all the different casinos being on the top floor. It was like, wow, now I'm 
truly living the dream, right? Went out to eat uh, expensive seafood that I don't really like, or um, wine that I couldn't pronounce or didn't even taste a difference of, but uh, who cares? Uh, went out to shop like crazy, all Gucci, Prada, and uh, whatever, uh, everything that is like the sign of a successful person. And then coming back to the to the hotel room, um, I started to get this like really bad feeling in my stomach. And then up in my hotel room, I actually uh, kind of uh, started to cry and uh, just had this feeling of, wow, is this what a successful, happy life is? And I just watched on these Gucci Prada bags and it was almost like they had a message to me, like, you're so pathetic. How could you ever believe that this myth of consumption could buy you happiness? Oh, I thought it was just because you hadn't brought the spring-summer collection. No, and that was it, right? If it was a spring collection, it would be a totally different game. stylish enough. That is, I mean, you know, there are people that go on podcasts and definitely say that's why they went into the hotel room and cried. Glad that wasn't your story. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So maybe, yeah, I should redo it, I guess. No, so it was like quite clear that, I mean, and all smart persons know this, that it's a very strong correlation with money and happiness up to a certain point, about $5,000, some research shows. And then it's just a diminishing uh, return curve. So for every each dollar, it's like it makes less and less sense. And I mean, it was uh, not feeling too sore about myself. I mean, I was still uh, super fortunate to have this financial freedom, right? To me, then to chase like the next dollar valuation uh, sort of stopped making sense. And during this time of, of running Klarna for these seven years, I, I lost contact with a lot of friends. Uh, my girlfriend broke up with me because I worked too much, uh, as well as becoming uh, rich niveau, if that's a word in English. Uh, translate it for us. Yeah, niveau rich or rich niveau when you become like... Oh, uh, like nouveau riche, nouveau riche. Yeah, nouveau riche, you, there you have it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I had this classical sports car, um, uh, big, big apartment in, up in Stockholm and so on. So all of these classical symbols. And uh, in Vegas, I replaced my fake Rolex with a real one and so on. And like, But still, I mean, nothing, nothing changed. Nothing changed. It was so apparent that all of these happy faces on these commercials is just just a myth and this also made me reflect a little bit i mean i went into retreats and therapy and started to like try to find out what this does really make sense here in life and so on and basically all happiness research pointed in the same direction and that was like a happy life is a meaningful life and when i started to reflect on klana that i was part of creating the business model and everything it's like wow super good that we make shopping online more smooth But at the same time, uh, we enable people to shop without having money, uh, essentially perhaps even increasing consumption in society. And this given uh, that we need four planets today to sustain the the consumption of an average Swede and I'm sure an average citizen in in the UK as well. How dare you? (laughs) Yeah, sorry for that. (laughs) And it's like, okay, what's my responsibility here? and at this point of time as well, uh, Klarna had much higher consumer fees, higher interest. Later on, Sebastian and the team actually uh, uh, slashed that and they are now probably the most uh, fair consumer finance company maybe in the world. But back then it was like uh, not a great product for the consumers. And we started to be criticized as well in Swedish media. So it's like, okay, now I'm, I'm seen here. I get like external validation, but it's kind of negative external validation. So it's the inverse of that. And, and this led me eventually to actually quit Klarna after 11 years, reaching about well, 1,500 employees, uh, valuation of $2.25 billion. But it was like, ah, this is not what keeps me uh, meaning in life. How was that conversation with your co-founders? Like, were you able to sort of, were you able to have that deep conversation with them? 
No, good question. So Victor had already left like five years earlier. So it was only me and Sebastian left. And I remember me playing charade, charades with, uh, with my girlfriend that uh, different scenarios of how Sebastian would take this. But he actually took it really, really well. He completely understood. And we sort of agreed that we just have different timelines of. Uh, I wanted to change Klarna much quicker. Uh, and we already had started doing that. And Sebastian wanted to make sure that we were able to deliver in, in the start off in the US. Uh, and then later on, transform the company into being a fair consumer lender uh, company. So, And as well as I had this realization as well that being like so dependent on on uh, VC capital and all of this pressure uh, when I instead can just go off and do my own thing. That was just too too tempting to not pursue. Uh, when I watched around, uh, looked around and I saw my other fellow unicorn companies in Sweden and abroad, it was like, I don't know, if you take, for example, uh, the, the gaming companies in Sweden, the ones behind Candy Crush Saga and so on, it's like, okay, they, they really create a fun experience. For the one uh, playing them. But is this really good for the planet? Or is it just catching their attention. So that they are no longer able to like digest complex information. Mm-hmm. Is this good for the world or not? And I watched, like, looked across the Pacific, the, the Atlantic Ocean. You saw all of these like Facebooks and Instagram. It's like okay it seems like they connect friends. But at the same time they have these negative externalities of, of polarizing society. And given that all of these companies in the world. They are like obligated to maximize shareholder value so you have this like narrow-minded focus of solving a specific issue that makes sense to to profit maximize but without caring whatsoever if you hurt the planet or people doing so and if you like extrapolate that that curve and realizing that the next 30 years we will use as much material and energy as we have done the previous 10,000 years. You realize, hey, can we play this game forever? Or do we need to like reevaluate what really makes sense here? And can we like rethink of what we celebrate here only because a company reached a specific valuation? Is that worth celebrating? Or is that maybe taking us in the wrong direction? And that's why I decided to, once again, to quit, to instead start uh, this foundation called Norskin, in which we want to put the spotlight and capital on real entrepreneurs, so entrepreneurs that are solving real societal and planetarian issues with their, with their business model. And as a shareholder, did you decide to get completely out of Klarna or did you get to keep some shares in? Like, how did that work for you? No, so I immediately sold off about half of my shares um, and then eventually I'd be gradually selling off. And now I own less than 1%. Right. Okay. So I'm almost, almost completely off. It sounds like you've done a lot of work, personal work. Are you able to separate yourself from Klarna properly now? Uh, so in the beginning, when I left my operational role as deputy CEO, I was still like so dependent emotionally what was going on with Klarna. And I still had my like board position and I gave Sebastian a hard time of uh, how he ran the company and uh, how he should think instead and so on. And uh, I realized, I think, I mean, I'm a horrible board person here. This is not my role to be still like operational. So I decided that since I'm so emotionally attached, I need to sell off. And so I did. So I sold off uh, half quite soon after I actually left and as well quit the board so I could give uh, Sebastian some peace and he could do his thing. Uh, that was probably really good for, for him and really good for the company and good for me as well. But then like stuff still happens in the last six months and it all triggers emotion for you. If it did, I would probably try to reclaim all the therapy hours I, I, I've been having. Uh, since I've been able to sell off almost everything uh, that also like disconnects me from the company and also that I found this like new meaning in life right with what I'm doing with the foundation that I'm doing now 100% uh, full time 
Yeah, that's really fascinating. I'm impressed, I have to say. I think it must be extremely hard. I mean, you know, selling off financially is one thing, but I just know how difficult it is for any founder to disconnect the identity from the role, but quite promising to know that there is enough therapy that you can get to help you get through that and to that moment anyway. Yeah, absolutely. But this is still like the, the, the demon inside me. I mean... Will I ever be completely cured from this performance-based self-consciousness? Will I still ever like be able to 100% let go of external validation? Have I started this non-profit Norwegian foundation just as another way to be seen and be recognized? Oof, I don't know. Uh, maybe like a combination. I think I have like more acceptance and love with my ego now than ever. But uh, I still have to like continue my routines with meditation and uh, let go of, of that aspect in life. So if money can't buy happiness, what can buy happiness, Nicholas? How do you, uh, how do you navigate that topic and move from one to the next? I guess everyone has their recipe, but for me at least, it is to do something meaningful. And uh, since we're now with the foundation, I donated half of my wealth into the foundation, 125 million euros. And to just see uh, the impact movement getting speed is just uh, very, very motivating. So in Sweden now, for example, we have 34 times as many impact startups as the world average. It's a big, big movement. And if you are a talent out of the top schools or whatever, uh, you actually do care of what kind of company you start. Maybe you don't start another like online casino or a credit company or an addictive game, but you actually start a company that is tackling climate change or solve some of our like energy needs or something similar. And that's why we're seeing companies like in Sweden today, we have uh, Northvolt, for example, creating the world's greenest battery. We have companies like Einride creating these electrical autonomous trucks and Heart Aerospace, uh, one of the first electrical passenger airplanes. And I think this is just the start. And to me, like the next generation of business building, when you build businesses that are in, uh, in compass with nature, as well as uh, um, satisfying shareholders. Yeah, I think you're right. It's also interesting, you know, to think about where opportunity for investing, but also like innovation inspiration comes from. So like no one necessarily sits around and thinks, how am I going to start the next EDF? You know, that just doesn't happen. But if you start to make like, that's one thing that the startup industry did so well, right? It made tech cool. So the better way to get the world to change is to show people how cool how amazing it can be to put product design, innovation and everything together for people so they buy it instead of what they're already buying because they actually want it. No, completely agree. And this is what we're seeing in Sweden as well. I think that uh, what Northvolt have done for the Swedish ecosystem, showing that you can build like $10 billion company uh, or an impact company, that is really what is paving the way. And that's why we see all of these impact startups now being uh, created. Um, in which you can combine like the capital markets, but having it much more like uh, mission aligned with people and nature and just not just shareholder value. So to me, this is also like, uh, I mean, it's multiple solutions or challenges with what we're facing in the world now. We're hitting the planetary boundaries one after another. It's like peak phosphor, peak nitrogen, um, loss of biodiversity, mass migration, all of this. But if we can find like this new definition of businesses uh, that are in uh, friendship with nature i think this is a very very good of tackling these issues and you keep saying with nature i want to know what that means to you because it obviously does mean something specific to you and it might not be as obvious to me or listeners yeah i mean one way of seeing it is that uh, the governments have subsidized sometimes subsidized unprofitable businesses i mean we saw this during the corona right 
But if you take a step back, uh, you can sort of see that the entire market, all market, have been subsidized by nature since start. So uh, every like uh, unit of fossil fuels being taken up does have an externalizing harm on nature. And if you look at what the real price for an iPhone would be, that would be $5,000 if you incorporate all the, the waste that goes into producing an iPhone. So it's so clear that we are having all of this consumption and the way of living and creating and doing all of these uh, products, but we're externalizing that harm through climate change and all of these other molecules, uh, and that cannot go on forever. So yes, I do think that um, the way to define an impact company, at least the way we do it, is that for every unit of sales, it needs to be one unit of impact of solving the sustainability development goals. And that could then be um, uh, Einride, for example. So for each unit of an electrical truck is one electrical truck, or sorry, one truck less, less of a combustion engine. So the more they grow, uh, the better for, for them and for the planet. $125 million invested into this is an enormous amount of money, but it's like absolutely nothing at the same time because to get some of these projects off the ground is like eye-watering. It's staggering to think about the actual investment that goes in to make these changes. So how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the world you want to live in and the world you're part of creating and the sheer amount of money that you've put into it, knowing that it's not enough? If you look at the amount of money we need to solve for the sustainability development goals, I think we need 16 times the money that currently goes in. So we are like hitting the planetary boundaries one after another, and it doesn't look pretty. Uh, so the way we see it is that we need to be catalytic. It's quite clear that our uh, small endowment won't uh, change a thing. And uh, we started with uh, a very small fund initially. It was a 25 million euro fund. We tried to raise external capital to that one. But everyone told us in 2016 that you cannot combine impact and financial return. You have to, to select one of them. So we went with three other unicorn founders that agreed to, to get maximum 1x in return. So like a cap 1x. This was a horrible financial investment for them, but they were really very generous. And what we saw then from this portfolio that we started to invest into, that the companies that had the best uh, impact was the one with a proper business model that could scale for each unit of revenue, then they could do even more impact by hiring even more people. And that's when we realized that, hey, let's let's change this into a proper fund. And so we did. So uh, in 2020, we launched a 125 million euro fund in which we actually tried to prove to the world that you can combine impact and financial return. Because we think that if we can show this to these uh, traditional institutions, that this is a very good way of investing, that's when we can get like the trillions uh, to move. Taking one step back, I mean, you have all of these cities, corporations, uh, nation states that have pledged going net zero by 2050. I mean, it's a huge business opportunity, right? So today we actually have more than $500 million under management divided on five different fund strategies and fund teams, tackling different stages of a startup. So all the way from the beginning in an accelerator to uh, all the way to growth capital. And now we also have two funds being launched to Africa, uh, which is another chapter. I don't know if I have time to go into that, uh, but that, that we find also a very um, huge challenge, but an enormous uh, business opportunity as well. I mean, I'm, I'm curious. I'd love to know what, what is the challenge there compared to elsewhere? If you look at uh, Africa being a lot of the different governments and really said, but we want 
trade, not aid. We want sustainable economic development. That is the best way to reduce poverty, enable tax dollars coming in, and then have a sustainable growth, just as we've seen in parts of Asia. And uh, so when we looked at that, it's like, okay, uh, if we can contribute to a striving tech entrepreneurship ecosystem, that is a good way of uh, uh, or additionality into uh, helping uh, that continent. Because if you look at it, they will go from Africa will go from 1.2 billion people into 4 billion people by the end of this century. Um, so a huge challenge, right? If you don't have economic development in this um, continent, it's quite obvious that we could end up in mass migrations given the climate change impacts that we do see in this part of the world. So we will be quite fine in the West with climate change, but a lot of countries will not and uh, of course if as a father or a mother you want to do something about that then maybe not stay uh, if you don't see it's a positive future for your children but at the same time if you look at Africa you have 60% being 25 years or younger and this population is now getting smartphones in their hand you see like internet broadband penetration becoming increasingly penetrated the cost of data traffic going down as well so the way I see it and, and Norskan is like, wow, this is maybe like the best business opportunity of a lifetime uh, to invest into Africa at this moment of time. And that's why we have set up uh, uh, two different funds investing into seed companies as well as growth companies. Because if we can enable the next unicorns, they already exist, of course, but even more coming from Africa, maybe that will generate even more people and talent going into entrepreneurship and creating even more local unicorns helping solve local problems. Obviously with Klarna, you are gonna get very smart people wanting to jump aboard a rocket ship that clearly makes loads of sense. How do you not just get a bunch of do-gooders? Like how do you get that killer instinct as well? Cause you kind of need both, don't you, I guess? For this to be really successful, you need both. No, exactly. We need people that don't uh, have too narrow definition of a problem, right? They have a wider definition of a problem and how to solve for it where you do encompass uh, externalities. Uh, when I was still at Klarna, we recruited super good people. And that was like one of my first learning building, uh, learnings building, building Klarna, that if we're going to enable high growth, we need to find the best, best people. Especially given that we were 23 years old and knew nothing. We need to have fantastic people. But now running Norskin, I must say that this is like uh, not 10x, but uh, next level again. Because people today, they really do find, want to find meaning uh, as well as having a, a joyful career. And going into impact investment and impact entrepreneurship, you can actually get both. So the people we attract is like world star people, uh, which is fantastic. Because to your point here, I, I don't think we need like people that sit around the campfire singing Kumbaya. You actually need to have these like super hungry people. Some of them being like egoistic, motivated like me and uh, having a lot of challenges with their ego. But if you direct that in the right way, uh, which I think we as a society start to do now in a much more uh, way, I think that is like super hopeful for the civilization. So just on that, it sounds like in a very short time of meeting you and, and, and really enjoying, by the way, the conversation and your insights, you're sort of stuck in, in two realities at the moment. And one is the identity of the person looking forward and all the great things you are doing and not quite able to give yourself enough credit for that because you're still human and still holding on to another pile of money that sort of represents the past life. It's almost like you've basically, um, you've got the primitive mind and the enlightened mind going on here. 
And Primitive Mind has his bucket of money that isn't quite sure what he's going to do with it, but it's uh, accumulating just in case. And you've got Enlightened Mind that knows exactly what he should be doing with it, that's tapping into your actual happiness and psychology the whole time. I'm wondering how this battle like plays out on a day-to-day basis for you. Uh, no, it is an ongoing battle. Um, I, I mean, I have decided to donate everything uh, eventually uh, before I die. But at the same time, I'm not sacrificing anything. I'm still living like a dream life. So is, I mean, do I have the right to do that? And being in my position, I read a lot and I take part of a lot of the uh, how it's not sustainable, the way we live. And then at the same time, going on a um, luxurious trip to um, Kenya or whatever. I mean, it does, it does. It's a little bit puzzling. Uh, but I mean, what a luxurious problem to have. I mean, it's, mm. uh, it's, no one should ever feel sorry for me. And I don't think anyone is. Uh, because I have these like uh, doubts, uh, and I think it will be always be there, and um, sometimes a little bit uh, uh, too much, and sometimes a little bit less. I go out and then on these podcasts as well. I tell them, hey, it was no correlation any longer with money and happiness, but still I have these like expensive uh, habits. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know the right English word here, but something around that you get used at a certain level. It's a psychological phenomenon that if you are used to warm showers. You get used to it. You don't really appreciate it until the mm. day you don't have warm showers. You cannot give up on it. And this is also why I feel sometimes quite negative about the world development. That if everyone's going to get used to like higher and higher comfort, as, as soon as you reach that level, it takes three weeks. Then you just have totally internalized it. And then you're going to chase the next one. It's like, whoa. I remember when I got uh, when I started hitting the uh, Sweden's riches list. And I was approached by this uh, billionaire friend of mine. It's like, okay, congrats, Niklas. Now Forbes riches list is next. It's like, oh, whoa, okay. So it's like, it's never an end to this. And my friends, mm. sort of friends, business friends start to buy private jets and uh, luxury yachts and expensive art and art can always be more expensive. It's like, when is it enough? When is it ever enough? And someone said, hey, you're never completely free until you have a private jet. It's like, if everyone's <laughs> going to have a private jet, is this what is required to be free? Then I think you need to work with on your on your ego, right? So if I'm gonna give one advice here to your fellow listeners, maybe this that this like race of getting more and more will never end. You will always want more. So that I think the cheapest way of of doing this and the most effective way of doing this is to work on your in, inner journey to like realize what is actually wanting all of this stuff and how can I live like a really rich life without it? Because uh, it sounds like uh, new agey, but I think the, the answer is really this inner journey from your from your mind into your heart. Oh, I, I totally agree. In fact, there's, a, um, there's an amazing story I'll, uh, I'll leave you with to think about. Do you know the book uh, Catch-22? Yes. So there's a party that's on Shelter Island by a billionaire, and Kurt Vonnegut informs his pal, who's called Joseph Heller, who wrote that, that the host, who's a hedge fund manager, uh, manager, had made more money in a single day than Heller had ever earned in his very popular Catch-22 book over its whole history. And Heller just very quickly turns and goes, yes, but I have something he'll never have. I have enough. Mm-hmm. God, that really is the place to get to, isn't it? And it's tough and it's a journey. But it sounds, you know, the journey with this stuff always starts with awareness. It sounds like you're super aware and massively on that journey. So uh, on behalf of all listeners... And certainly myself, I'm excited for you to get there because you're clearly doing great things in the world. So thank you very much for being vulnerable, being honest, making this your second ever podcast appearance. I've learned a lot from it and I'm really grateful that you spent the time. So thank you. Thank you. It was a pleasure. 
Thanks again to Niklas Adelbert for sharing two amazing stories with us today, Klarna and Norsken. Here at Mindset Win, we want to give you the tools to become better at what you do. Taking inspiration and wisdom from our guests, we will hear stories, strategies, tips and tricks. Told by leading names in sport and beyond. Who know what it takes to get to the very top. There will be two episodes each week packed with amazing stories and practical takeaways for us all to follow. Search for Mindset Win on YouTube and on your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening to this episode of Secret Leaders. I've been your host, Dan Murray-Serta. The episode was produced by Ruth Edwards and Sol Harris. It was brought together by our head of podcast, Will Stolliman. Until next time.